Our sermon passage is going to come from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18 to 20. I'm going to read the whole section, and this is our last uh, sermon in the series on the armor of God. So friends, hear God's word, Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. Well, thank you very much, Pastor Ben. Let me begin by acknowledging all the good work that uh, Pastor Kurt and his missions team have done over the last couple of weeks. Wasn't it a great missions festival? I think it went very well. Really good. And there's a lot of hard work that goes into that. So I don't know whether Kurt's here, but if he is here, we should at least thank the team. It was just a wonderful time. And... And just also on a personal note, I need to bring you up to speed about something before we um, start studying God's Word. So I won't actually be preaching next Sunday, and I know I haven't preached the last two Sundays either, so you need to, like, have a, there needs to be a personal context to that. So um, a week or so ago, I had a lot of pain, huge amounts of pain, crazy pain, went on for days and days, and was taking pain medication for it. Eventually, um, a, a doctor in the church, uh, Dr. Duvel, um, a non-sitting elder of the church, said, you've got to go to ER. So I went to ER, um, went right out of an elder council meeting. So it was, a, it was a great way to get out of a board meeting, I tell you. <laughs> and um, so I did that, went to the ER and um, told him that no pain medication was working. So he put me on intravenous morphine, uh, which is good stuff. I recommend it. Um, and so then, and I was diagnosed with a gallbladder issue. So this is a pretty, you know, it's a fairly standard thing that my father had the same thing and uh, it's just genetic, I guess. So it needs to be removed. So I'm having surgery um, tomorrow. I'm no longer on pain medication, by the way, in case you're wondering. And though I did teach um, uh, a class across the street and preach midweek on hydrocodone, which is a fairly strong narcotic. So... I don't know what that means, but I, they seem, the classes seem to go pretty well. <laughs> so, um, anyway, so, and I'm now off all that pain medication. If you come up to me afterwards, how are you feeling? I'm feeling fine. I feel as fit as a fiddle. 
And um, apparently everything else about me is really good. You know, I went to the ER, like everything is in tip-top shape. And, you know, apart from the fact that I was in agony, everything else was good. And so, anyway, I just need to give you that context because you, you'll be thinking, well, why is he not preaching next Sunday too? You know, so this is why. So surgery's tomorrow. Could be very fast recovery. The doctor urged me. I said, can I get back to you know, work the next day? And he said, look, I urge you, take the whole week. Just take the week. So that's what I'm going to do. And it, but I should be, it should be fine. So that's just the context. And um, let's then uh, look at the Bible. Let me read out the passage for us again. Uh, it's Hebrews, uh, Hebrews, that's next week, <laughs> Ephesians chapter 6 and verses 18 to 20, in the middle of the sentence, uh, we're picking up, finishing the series, so uh, Ephesians chapter 6 verse 18, Paul writes, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given me in opening my, mouth, opening my mouth, boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am a, an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So obviously, the end of this series on the armor of God, the theme of these few verses is very obviously about prayer. And I suppose most of us here are somewhat energized to think through prayer, but perhaps not. So let me, at the beginning, just give us a few reasons why we should pay attention and think about prayer. Uh, first of all, um, Christians are taught, so basically there's a gap, so let me explain that. So Christians are taught that prayer is important, and yet most Christians find prayer hard. And so the combination of those two things tends to create something of a gap. You know that praying is important. Uh, on the other hand, experientially, prayer is not always easy. Sometimes you fall asleep while you're praying. <laughs> um, sometimes you, your mind goes off in a different direction. You perhaps think, well, are my prayers really being answered? I pray for something for years. The Bible tells me to keep on praying for it, but nothing seems to be happening. So there's a gap. There's a gap between what we're told and what we instinctively feel is important, that we should be committed to praying. And then there's our experiential reality that is often not quite the same. And there's all sorts of teaching and books and encouragement to pray, and yet there's still a gap. And so it's important then that we um, think about uh, prayer together. So let's do that. What is Paul uh, teaching here? Let me give it to you in a, in a summary sentence, and then I'll explain how I get there. Essentially, the Apostle Paul is uh, telling us that persevering, persistent, Spiritual praying is an essential requirement for spiritual warfare for all Christians and also for the effective boldness of gospel preachers. 
So we'll come back to that sentence and I'll explain how you, you don't have to remember every word of it, but I'm just giving you the framework. Persistent, persevering, spiritual praying is an essential requirement for spiritual warfare for all Christians and also for the effective boldness of gospel preachers. So then let's um, see how we get there. And to do that, let me remind you a little bit of the context. It's been a couple of weeks since we've been in the book of Ephesians. So the book of Ephesians essentially is structured around a series of really profound descriptions of what Christ has done. And then in the second half of the book, there is a call to do certain things in the light of what Christ has done. That's basically what the book's about. And then throughout that, there's an ongoing theme of the new creation. So this one new man, that is the body of Christ, this one new person, where the divine wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile has been broken down through the atoning work of Christ on the cross, this one new Man, this one new body has been created, this new creation. The work of Christ on the cross has done this. We're united by his spirit, and therefore, we're to keep the unity of spirit through the bond of peace. And therefore, we are to throw off all kinds of malice and uh, unkind words. And therefore, put on the whole arm of God. So that's, that's the basic structure of the book, what Christ has done. Therefore, what we're to do with the theme of this new creation, the new humanity, this whole new society, there's the church. So the great hope for the world, God's grand purpose uh, is um, God's people and God's place under God's rule, as one um, Australian biblical theologian famously put it. It's this new humanity. That's us, the church. So the great hope for racial reconciliation, the great hope for social transformation the, is not the tech companies in Silicon Valley. It's us. The church, not just this local church, but any local church. And that's why we come to church. That's why we commit to church. That's why we give our lives to church. Not because, you know, we like religious social clubs. No, because God has created this new society, has been created, and therefore because of it, we need to live a certain way, invest in it, and, and be ambassadors for the message of Christ as God's new community. And so then he comes to the armor of God. And the armor of God is, a, is a, an extended metaphor of what that means. And he uses, a, obviously, a picture of a soldier, the putting on armor. And we come to this uh, part about praying at the end. And in this extended metaphor, the simplest way to remember what he's saying is that it's echoing the same, what Christ has done and therefore what we're to do. And you can see this with the use of tenses of the verbs. So uh, it begins in verse 10 with basically, uh, verse 10 and following, as he sets up the armor of God with three imperatives, which are commands. Do certain things. So be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That's an imperative. Do this. 
Then verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. That's an imperative. Do this. Put it on. And um, then verse, um, uh, uh, verse 14, stand, therefore, an imperative. So be strong. Put on the whole armor of God. Stand. Things we're to do in the light of what Christ has done. And so then there are a series of verbs in the aorist tense, which is um, the past tense, but in Greek the aorist is particularly the tense of completed action, what Christ has done. Put on the armor of God, the gospel, put that on as this new society. And so all these uh, tenses here about the armor of God are all uh, in uh, this aorist uh, tense, having put on the readiness given by the gospel uh, 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 of peace. Take up, uh, take, these are, all, these are all aorist, completed action, because the helmet of salvation is something that Jesus has done, and therefore we're to put on the whole armor of God, put on the gospel, live in the reality of what Christ has done, and that's how this new society, the great hope of the whole world, the church, becomes what it's meant to be as we put on the armor of God, as we live in the reality of who we are because of what Christ has done. See? See? And then we come to the end of this, um, this teaching where he talks about, obviously, prayer. And the end of this teaching about prayer, there's a lot of conversation, is it another piece of the armor of God? How does it fit into it? Is it a, is it a change of subject? No, it's not a change of subject, but it's also not another piece of the armor of God. He doesn't describe prayer as a piece of the armor. He doesn't imagine praying as another bit of the armor. He, he doesn't do that. Instead, praying, now um, described in the tense, what's called a participle, praying, ongoing action, so not the aorist, past action, not an imperative, command, but ongoing action, praying. And so all this prayer is intended to be the animating, empowering of uh, this new humanity through prayer. And this is why I say it's an essential requirement. Obviously, it's by God's grace through what Jesus has done on the cross. It's what God has done. But there's an essential requirement. The praying is the animating power of this whole armor of God. So it's hugely significant. And he emphasizes its significance through repetition of one total word, so the word all, all is obviously a, um, the whole thing, the total thing, the whole year, all, and he emphasizes that four times, so he says, verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit, then with all prayer and supplication, to then and keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So all, 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 four times, Paul's emphasizing the significance of this. Not, not sometimes, not for some of the saints, not with some perseverance, but all. So this, this matters. This is the animating power. It's the essential, uh, essential requirement. So you remember that sentence at the beginning to, that I've used to summarize it? So this persevering, persistent, spiritual praying, that's not prayer, praying, it's the participle, ongoing action, the praying 
It's an essential requirement for our spiritual warfare. It's connected to the armor of God, which is all about spiritual warfare uh, for all Christians and also uh, for the bold effectiveness of gospel preachers, and we'll come to that now. So then, having set this up, Paul now, as he teaches about praying, does it in a commendably simple way, in a char- or perhaps better put, in a characteristically simple way for Christian teaching about prayer. It is one of the distinctives of faithful biblical teaching about prayer that it is not overly complicated. You see this uh, preeminently, of course, in Jesus' teaching about prayer. Uh, Jesus, when he teaches about prayer, says, don't pray like the pagans who think they'll be heard for all their many words. No, when you pray, say, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Simple. Just pray. And, of course, there's a teaching about how to pray there. But it's not overly complicated, not lots of fancy words, not lots of complicated terminology. Not, not, you know, if I say justification, sanctification, and glorification enough in my prayers, I'm more likely to be heard. No. It's simple. And you get the same teaching, of course, in the Old Testament with Elijah at Mount Carmel, where all the pagan prophets had all their complicated, lengthy praying, and they tried, they even cut themselves until they're bleeding, trying to get the attention of God to answer their prayers. And Elijah steps up, and he just, very simple prayer. And Paul here, similarly, his teaching is characteristically simple. And when he describes here, I think probably the best way to structure and explain it to you is he just is describing how to pray, who to pray for, and what to pray. So how to pray, and the two parts to how to pray he has here. First, he says pray at all times in the Spirit. And um, the at all times, I won't spend a lot of time describing that, but the at all times almost certainly in Paul's mind means both praying as you're going through life, so I can pray for you as I preach, I'm praying for you now, I'm praying that the Lord will be at work, that he'd soften hearts, that he'd give me words, but I'm still speaking, I can pray at the same time. You can pray while you, uh, I have a very good, a good friend who's a Swiss banker who tells me that, that when he's doing deals and uh, he's praying, you can, pray, you can have different tracks going on in your mind at the same time, you can pray at all times in that sense. But he also means, I think, the set times of prayer that were, were, were typical for uh, uh, Jews and are typical for Christians today, praying in the morning, praying in the evening, these set times of prayer without breaking from the pattern. So praying at all times, but then he says, pray in the Spirit. Well, what does he mean by praying in the Spirit? As you can imagine, there's been a lot of conversation about that, but basically it's quite simple because uh, Paul has explained it earlier in his letter to the Ephesians. So if you've got a Bible open, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 18. You'll see how he describes what praying in the Spirit means. So he says, for through him, that is Jesus, we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So part of praying the Spirit is praying through Jesus, what Jesus done on the cross, allows us to have access to God. So it's praying because of the gospel. That's praying in the Spirit, or verse 22, chapter 2. In Him, again, in Jesus, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by, or in, 
the Spirit. So part of praying the Spirit is the communal prayer that we do every Sunday, that we pray as God's people together, as one person being heard, but we're all praying together, and that God, by His Spirit, is building us into a dwelling place. It, part of one of the metaphor for the church of God there is a house where a building that God is building up by His Spirit. So that's part of what it means to pray in the Spirit is the church of God being built up. And then if you look at chapter 3, uh, verses 14 and on, there's a wonderful prayer there uh, for strength to discern how much God loves us. And he says, verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, uh, uh, before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth has been named. And he describes this in verse 16, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit. So what does that mean? Well, verse 17 goes on, uh, so that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith. And verse 18 uh, that you, end of verse 17, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So part of praying in the Spirit is to have the power to grasp just how much God loves you. He loves you. The, the height and the breadth and the depth of His love for you. It's beyond simple, it's beyond easy comprehension. The scale of His love for you. So part of the work of the Spirit, being the Spirit, is being overcome with the extraordinary love of God for His people. That's part of what it means to pray in the Spirit. And then chapter 4, verse 3 he says, uh, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So part of what it means to pray in the Spirit is to be united with one another. We have been made one through Christ's work on the cross, and now we make every effort through the bond of peace to, to, to experience that unity that we have. So part of uh, praying the Spirit is praying a united way without rancor and division and anger and, and um, dissension, but united. That's what it means to pray in the Spirit, to be united. And of course, ironically, often what people, the way people teach what it means to pray in the Spirit ends up being fantastically divisive. That's the last thing it means to pray in the Spirit. It means to be united, one, one heart, united in prayer. And then we're praying in the Spirit, you see. And uh, so what does it mean to pray in the Spirit? Uh, uh, Paul also describes it in Ephesians 4, verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. So to not pray in the Spirit, the opposite of praying in the Spirit, uh, would be to uh, have um, corrupt talk come out of your mouths, uh, to have bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander Put that all away from you, along with all malice. Instead, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So the, the, the opposite of praying the Spirit is to have bitter, angry, divisive, malicious words be spoken. That's the very opposite. But to pray in the Spirit is to be kind-hearted, tender-hearted, forgiving. Then we're praying in the Spirit when that's the the atmosphere, the characteristic, the tendency, the habits, the speech patterns of God's people. 
And uh, so then finally, what does he mean by praying the Spirit? Look at chapter 5, verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So to be filled with the Spirit is the opposite of alcoholic drunkenness. Don't be uh, drunk with wine. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, which means, verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So being, praying in the Spirit reflects this work of the Spirit, which is the opposite of drunkenness and is characterized instead by... Singing to one another. Congregational singing. In psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That whole panoply of variety that we enjoy at Cottage Church. As we sing to one another. It's part of what it means to be in the Spirit and then pray in the Spirit. So do you get a sense of what Paul means then by praying in the Spirit? Is our united, kind, gospel-centered um, worship singing together, congregational singing, uh, as a re- reflection of what Christ has done now experienced in our individual lives and in our united lives as the Spirit builds us up into a dwelling place where, uh, where God lives by His Spirit. That is the church of God, the community of God. So that's all in terms of how that Paul's teaching here, the spiritual side to it. But there's also a very practical side to it. And practically, he emphasizes that as well. He says, praying at all times, so that's very practical. With all prayer and supplication, again, very practical. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. Perseverance is practical. I I sometimes hear uh, teaching about prayer that, that emphasizes that for a Christian, praying should be as natural as breathing. Well, I've never found that personally. Never. And I don't think that's the emphasis of Paul. He says you've got to persevere. I don't, I, I'm not persevering in breathing. I'm just breathing. Prayer is work. It's, it's practical effort. And that's why he says keep alert. I, I, I don't have to like make sure I'm alert to breathe. I just breathe. But prayer, you've got to, you've got to stay awake. Uh, this is why one of the first things I do in the morning before I start my time of quiet and prayer is get a cup of coffee. It's not going to do any good if I'm asleep. Uh, that's why sometimes I think it will be a great innovation. It should be the next ecclesiological innovation of uh, church life. That in, When the offering plate is passed, they should also pass around options for coffee. Right in the middle of the service. I kid you not, I think it would be brilliant. Would you like, how would you like your caffeine? You know, coffee, um, and then uh, we could have, um, what's the stuff that the kids drink, which is, practically makes you, like, jump off the ceilings? We should have some of that, too, whatever that is. Gatorade or something. Like, now I'm ready to listen and pray. Right before the congregational prayer, you know, there's this beautiful congregational prayer, and you're just thinking, I've got I've to stay tuned in. But if you'd have that cup of coffee, you'd be awake. See, it's a good idea. We should do it. Deacons, come on, let's do it. No, I'm not really suggesting it, but anyway. Um, but, but actually, when he talks about being awake, he isn't simply talking about like 
be awake. He's referring almost certainly to Jesus' teaching about wakefulness when Jesus says, watch and pray, and he's looking forward to when Jesus, Jesus is looking forward to when he returns again. And so when he says, watch and pray, he's saying, be alert because Jesus is imminently returning. At any moment, Jesus can return, and therefore, wake up and pray. This is not the time to be drowsy as Christians. This is the time to be alert because Jesus could walk in through that door at any moment. Wake up. Got to be alert and pray. And so this is all um, uh, how to pray. Who to pray for? Well, he says, pray for all the saints, uh, end of verse 18. And then he says, and also for me. What does he mean by all, all the saints? As many of us know, when the Bible talks about for all the saints, it means all Christians. So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, when he says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So the saints are not biblically some super elite, especially holy group of people. The saints, biblically, are, as he says, to the, saint, to, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So who are the saints? Those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. That is real Christians. And similarly, when he, um, when this prayer in chapter 3, when he says, may you have, uh, chapter 3, verse 18, may you have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. He's not saying, along with that spiritual superhuman elite, he's talking about those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. May all the Christians understand how much God loves them. And so when he says, pray for all the saints, he means pray for all Christians. And so that's part of who we are to pray for. But then he also says, pray for me. Um, Paul, of course, is a gospel preacher. And Paul describes the kind of prayer he wants to be prayed for for him. And Paul actually frequently asks to be prayed for. And gospel preachers should ask to be prayed for. It is particularly important that the congregation of God pray for its preachers. Uh, when you're preaching the gospel, you are involved in a particularly intense way with spiritual warfare. And you are an ambassador to proclaim the gospel to the church and to the world. And gospel preachers need to be prayed for by God's people. And for a gospel preacher to ask for prayer is not egocentric, it's not selfish, it's good for the church because, and it's good for the work of the kingdom. We need to pray for gospel preachers. And in particular, and again this is characteristic of the Apostle Paul, the things he asks for prayer for, in particular here he asks for two things. Uh, one, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth. In other words, he especially is asking for prayer that when he speaks, when he opens his mouth, he would have the right words given to him by God to explain the Word. And so there's a spiritual dynamic to preaching where you are looking for, studying for, asking for God to give you the right message the right words to explain the Word. So pray that for me. Pray that for other preachers of the gospel, that I would have the right words 
to explain the word, but also he asks for boldness. He emphasized that by repeating it, opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. That word boldness can be translated also clarity. It has the sense of freedom, fluency of speaking. So what Paul is is asking for is the, the freedom the fluency, the clarity, the boldness to speak. In his case, uh, before uh, probably the emperor, as he's in jail, an ambassador in chains, that he have the boldness to preach. For preachers today, that we have the boldness to stand on the truth when the general ideology of the day is not in favor of the authority of Scripture that we'd have the boldness to stand on that, that we, we would have the boldness to preach the truth even if, they, if we are attacked, as all faithful gospel preachers are inevitably attacked, that we would still have fluency, freedom, clarity, and boldness. Not, not hide behind the pulpit saying the things that we think people want to, to hear, but speaking with clarity and boldness the truth of God, not in a way that's offensive needlessly or angry or nothing like that, but bold, courageous, clear preaching. So that's what we are to, uh, uh, what we, uh, what we to, to request, particularly for preachers. Now then, all that to say that what Paul's teaching us here is that the persevering, persistent spiritual praying is an essential requirement for the spiritual warfare for all Christians and also for the effective boldness of gospel preachers. How then can we do that? Let me give that to you in just a few simple steps. First of all, here are some tools for you. I recommend them to you. I found them helpful in my own life. First of all, pray until you pray. It's the advice of the British Puritans from long ago, standard advice, pray until you pray, until you pray. It's what Paul here is, it echoes Paul's advice here to pray with all perseverance. Pray until you pray. Too often we articulate a prayer, um, we pray a little bit, and we sort of give up. It's like, okay, I've prayed about that. No, pray until you pray. As you pray, there comes a time when now I'm really talking to God. My mind is no longer distracted. I've persevered through. Now we're really praying. Pray until you pray. I commend that to you. I commend also to you the practicality of prayer. Make a schedule. Make a list. Set your alarm clock the practicality of prayer, and then finally I commend to you what Paul here also commends, which is the spirituality of prayer. So praying is not simply mechanistic. It's not simply a system. There is a spirituality to prayer. And we sense that when we're praying and we pray until we pray and we we exercise the discipline, the practicality of prayer, we we pray in the Spirit with a united voice, without rancor or division, forgiving one another, as God's people that He's been built together because of what Christ has done on the cross, therefore we're living in unity together. 
and then we're praying in the Spirit, and the Spirit is powerfully at work, and you sense that as you're in church, God is here. That we're building a dwelling place that God might, that God is here among us, that God is at work, that we're praying in the Spirit. I cannot define every part of what that means because we're talking about the Spirit's work. But I commend to you not simply praying until you pray, which is perseverance, and not simply the practicality of prayer schedules and lists and all the rest, but also that as defined by Paul in the letter to the Ephesians, that praying in the Spirit that we are all to long for and hope for and seek for. Well, that's enough. Next week, a new series. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, we do pray that you would help us as a church to be a praying church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.